Robert Moses is a man whose influence on Manhattan's roads, buildings and parks is perhaps unmatched by anyone else in the 20th century. On any day of the week, if you walk along Canal Street, the crush of endless waiting traffic. Now look at the solution. The Lower Manhattan Expressway. Moses put together the video you're hearing in the 1960s. He envisioned an expressway that would connect the Holland Tunnel on the west side of Manhattan to the Williamsburg and Manhattan bridges on its east side. To do it, he'd have to cleave through New York's Soho neighborhood. Moses believed he was looking toward the future. But Jane Jacobs thought he was killing her city. The whole city thins down. Everything's been sacrificed to the car. Jacobs was a journalist and a keen observer. And for years, she'd noticed that great neighborhoods were about people. However, when you get rid of streets, sidewalks, businesses, and stop paying attention to how people use cities, that is when cities died. And she believed Robert Moses was taking Manhattan to a certain kind of death. It's pitiful that so many city neighborhoods have been destroyed for highway construction, slum clearance, urban renewal, and housing projects. She'd gone after Moses before. Her advocacy saved Washington Square Park and Greenwich Village. For the Lower Manhattan Expressway, Jacobs mounted a spirited defense. She staged a funeral procession down Broome Street. She co-wrote a protest song with Bob Dylan. And Jacobs won her campaign against the expressway, thwarting one of the most powerful men in New York in the process. And today, her ideas have inspired a new generation of advocates, people who see the value of her work and translate it to online communities, not just physical ones. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer about the hidden gems, hotspots, and dark alleys in the world of communication. Today on the show, we talk to Eli Pariser, an early pioneer of online activism and engagement. In the early aughts, Eli led the political organizing group MoveOn.org, and from there he went on to found the startup Upworthy. In his first book, he coined the idea of the filter bubble to describe how social media pushes us into silos, sending early warnings about the dark side of powerful algorithms that are engineered to maximize attention and engagement. These days, he's dedicated to making digital spaces better. He started a new group called Civic Signals, a multidisciplined effort to make online spaces healthier and more inclusive using the lessons of community building from the offline world. We know what makes digital life so miserable these days. But today we discuss a more affirmative vision of the internet, one centered around the best aspects of communities. Eli, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I want to jump straight into the internet, right? You were early talking about some of the damaging aspects of the internet and what we're living through now. I mean, you were so early, I think it was like 2012 that you you were at least, you wrote your book, which means you were probably thinking already in 2008, 2009. Are there things that have surprised you about the trajectory of the things have taken in the past few years? I'll tell you, before I was concerned about the internet, I was like a, you know, all in digital utopian. You know, that was kind of the first 15 years of my following technology was like, this is amazing and it's going to democratize everything and it's going to empower 
citizens around the world. And toward the end of the decade, I started to wonder, like, why does it not seem like (laughs) people have so much more power or agency? And why does it actually seem like a bunch of institutions are more powerful than ever? And so that's really what led me to Filter Bubble. So in terms of surprises since then, we've all learned a lot about the complexity of trying to build systems that accommodate billions of people around the world. And I think for me, you know, one of the big shifts has been like moving away from when I was writing the filter bubble, this idea that the biggest problem was just that people weren't being exposed to information that they might disagree with, to now really trying to think about the relationships and the trust underneath that, that is the channels along which information, I think, are carried and and ideas move. You know, the, the, the Filter Bubble is one of those books where it's like the first 11 chapters are like, and here's another problem, and here's another problem. And then in the 12th chapter, you know, I'm trying to like tie it all up in a bow and and here's the solution and it never really got there. And so ever since I wrote it, I've been thinking about kind of what, what would the solution be? Have you got it? <laughs> um, I don't Tell us, if we just we cut this down to 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a piece of it that I think is is not that complicated, which is that a lot of the bad things that happen online are a function of structureless spaces that no one really feels any ownership or stewardship of. You know, when you look at what makes communities work in the real world, part of it is just like a number of people have to care an awful lot to do all of the annoying things that actually bind groups of people together. And some of that's like sending out the, you know, invitation to the potluck. And some of it's like helping mediate various inter-internal political disputes in a deft way. Yeah, there's just all these skills that go with having healthy communities that I don't think we've built most online spaces to facilitate. And a lot of the times we've actually taken the people who would be doing that work kind of out of the picture. So many countries, so many communities have ended up with massive misinformation and distrust. But I would love to to hear your sort of vision for a a better internet, not the solution, but where you potentially would see the internet being in the future. How old is your son? He's six uh, right now. And his name is? Ilo. Ilo. So for Ilo when he's 16, what would you like the internet to look like? There's a couple different qualities that I think are missing. So one is a real heterogeneity of spaces and designs that help facilitate different kinds of interactions and different kinds of collective experiences. Uh, It's not that you can't find them, but it's that gathering people outside of a few very uh, homogeneously designed platforms is tricky right now. And so I think that would be one piece. If you look at you know, physical communities, it means something different to meet someone in a cafe than it does. This is pre-COVID, I suppose. But, you know, meet them in a cafe, meet them in a park, meet them in a bar. These spaces have different affordances that lend themselves to different kinds of interactions. And I think we're trying to push an awful lot of sociality through a few very rigid forms. I think another piece is that Ilo would have a sense of agency and co-creation in the design of those spaces. And I think that matters both because our current designs are inherently biased toward the kinds of people that are executing them, which are mostly like white American men, but also actually because I think the relationship that you have with a space is really different when you feel like you have some ownership and some control of it. 
And so the idea is that, you know, when you engage in just like some very basic giving some feedback and having some control over how things are done in your workplace, you remember all of this capacity that people have to co-create and to co-regulate and to do things together. And I think that participatory piece both has immediate effects, but I think it also has bigger effects in terms of how you feel about how you relate to society. You wrote a piece for Wired about the way that public spaces like parks and libraries can serve as a model for online spaces. And it was written so clearly that even my mum would understand. (laughs) Can you tell me a bit more about that piece? So uh, what I was trying to do in the piece was look at what holds physical communities together and what can we learn for digital spaces. And when you start to kind of dig into that, there's this very rich theme of new research from sociology and, and other fields looking at how public spaces like parks and libraries play this critical role in connecting communities together. They literally have life-saving effects because when disaster strikes, what matters is who knows who and can check in on whom. And the fact that you have a space where you run into some guy who's sitting on the bench and you know to check in on that guy turns out to really matter. And so these spaces are the ways that we generate these kind of weak ties that then become really important when you're building communities. There's no analog to that in digital space, or, you know, not nearly enough. And instead, mostly what we're trying to do is cram a ton of challenging public problems into a few private companies that are built ultimately to increase quarterly earnings. You know, it's not the right form for those tasks to be done entirely within private companies. You know, what struck me in the piece was you you referenced the creation of public parks. I think you were referring to public parks in the States. Yeah. I live in Amsterdam, but I'm Mm -hmm. I'm British. And I thought, okay, let's see if the same applies to London. You know, were public parks only literally created 150 years ago in a city like London? And and they were. You know, Hyde Park was private hunting land up until... 1850 or something, then I thought, okay, let's have a look at Amsterdam, because surely that can't be the same in a, a very liberal, you know, socially advanced city like Amsterdam. It must be different. Exactly the same. Um, you know, for cities that are so old, it took, you know, centuries for them to realize that there needs to be a space that could be common ground where people could go and meet. Yeah. But, um, you know, the moment that private land became public was really around 1850 and pretty much, you know, in civil society. That I found amazing. I mean, you know, then we're doing quite well on the internet already, right? To be having this conversation 30 years in (laughs) and actually we're being quite progressive. You know, it's not a coincidence that people were talking about parks in the United States and in the UK in 1850. Like what was happening was industrialization, pollution, density in a real way for the first time and pertinent to our lives right now these epidemics of cholera and other viral diseases that were spreading through tenement buildings and stuff like that. And so, you know, the the park that my Wired piece focused on was this park that's down the street from my home that Walt Whitman was the champion of, weirdly enough. And a lot of the argument for the park was just like, people need to get fresh air or they will die. And we don't have a system for doing that. And so like, let's set aside this ground that allows for that to happen. But Whitman, being the kind of democratic believer that he was, immediately saw these bigger opportunities of, um, well, this is a place where people can kind of see each other, understand who's here in the city, across class, across race, and 
start to form some sense of kind of commonality. And that actually, if you don't have those spaces, it's really hard to do that in a city. You're just in your own little neighborhood. I read your piece and then I saw that you'd launched New Public. And New Public is a place for people to come together and imagine ways to make digital spaces better. Mm -hmm. And when I saw you launched it, it made complete sense. Yeah. So maybe you could just talk us through a bit of New Public as well. Yeah. The other thing that was inspiring kind of about Parks was there's this whole story of innovation. I'm American, so I've I've looked the most at the American piece of this, but it's definitely true in the UK and, and lots of other places as well, that were kind of like innovations of new public institutions, essentially. And Parks are an example. Libraries, half century later, as people start to become literate, but they can't afford books, all of a sudden kind of take off. There are whole categories of types of institutions that we probably don't have, but will seem as mundane in the future as parks and libraries <laughs> for digital life. Like we are early in the journey and we shouldn't imagine that the great feats of imagination can only happen in the context of ambitious entrepreneurs. Although I've been that, you've been that, it's all, all good, but that there are also these um, acts of public imagination. So New Public really is partly what we're trying to do is tell that story, offer a different way of thinking about what the internet might be, and then bring together the people who are excited about that to connect across disciplines. But when you're thinking about how to healthily aggregate groups of people, there are all sorts of domains other than being an engineer that are really valuable in figuring that out. And so I think partly we're trying to like convene that broader conversation that has the product managers, but also the kindergarten teachers who know a thing or two about how you bring people together across difference and the librarians and the, the other folks who have this domain expertise. You've started a new organization called Civic Signals, yeah. which is doing the thinking and research about improving online spaces. And under that umbrella is New Public and the New Public Festival. So we had the New Public Festival, which was really trying to show and tell. So how do we bring people together in some unorthodox ways and across these different disciplines around this idea of both learning from offline community to inform online community and you know building a better vision for what might be ahead. We tried to engage artists in helping people think about different ways that you might be together in virtual space. We were really trying to do everything but like a standard Zoom that everybody's sick to death of. You're the first company I know that used dial-up, that integrated dial-up, <laughs> which I think is one of the sweetest uh, sort of integrations of a conference I've experienced in this new digital world. Yeah, no. Di so dial-up is basically like you you get assigned to a random participant, you put in your number and you get a call all of a sudden. But it was genius because it gave you the opportunity to break out and not be behind a screen and actually go for a walk and talk, which straight up, one of, I've talked about that feature. <laughs> I thought it was yeah. a feature more than, more than many of the other topics just because it felt like such a breath of fresh air. No, it was it was great. And partly what we wanted to do with the festival is just open up conversation that also holds on to the wonder of what's possible in digital space. So how do we be rooted in the real ways in which our current structures have caused harms, have built on inequities that are not sort of naively utopian about what is inevitably going to happen, like like I might have been, you know, a decade ago. Can you give some examples? 
Well, we had this great, uh, we, we actually kicked off the festival with a piece by an artist, Lars. He just did this thing where he read through a bunch of statements that were actually very carefully crafted. And if you agreed with them, if they were true of you, then you moved a little closer to the camera. And if you didn't agree, you moved further away. And so you're supposed to, you know, you're watching like 50 people on a given screen on gallery view, and you just get this like feeling through motion of where the group is at. And there are these sort of moments where he tosses in kind of like a, have you ever been arrested or whatever? And and people kind of have to decide together, like, are we going to be honest about this? Or are we not? There's a question later in the in the series where he's like, have you lied about the answer to a question? And everyone like leans in. But it actually just very quickly created this sense of being together that I think so many of us have missed in the the pandemic moment, even though we're sort of in theory all together all the time on Twitter or whatever, like doesn't have that feeling. But that's what I had with dial-up, I have to be honest. Video is work, uh, email is work, Slack is work, and then suddenly a phone call out of the blue gives you the opportunity to be able to take a walk yeah. and talk and not be glued to your seat. Uh-huh. So just I just want to go back to the conversation we're having about Parkland because if I take the parks that are close to my home or close to where, where, you know, where I lived, where I was born, they were all private. Yeah. And at one point, they were gifted or they, they were simply you know, donated or, or bought or whatever mm-hmm. and then turned over to the public. Is that, is that your vision? Is that where you see things moving? At a certain point, Facebook will become public space and we'll no longer have to pay for it. There won't be any ads and it will be bought up by a conglomerate of nation states. I'm more focused on how do you create the right kind of ecosystem where, you know, maybe there still is a Facebook that does some set of functions, but we're less dependent on it for all of these critical public functions. And I think it's valuable in communities to have bookstores and to have libraries. They seem initially like they might be the same thing, or if you just turn the library into a bookstore, a bookstore into a library. Um, they are different because they're built around different goals and they serve different communities. And it's really a question of like, what do you create alongside Facebook that is really dedicated to serving those functions? And I think, yeah, the Google Wikipedia relationship is kind of instructive here in that it's sort of a symbiotic relationship between a private company and a public institution where it's better that it works that way than if Google were to create Googlepedia that was fully funded by Google. These things can coexist and maybe that's better for everyone. And when your son is 16, do you think they'll be around still? I think when he's 16, it's going to look really different. You know, I was talking to a cognitive psychologist who studies humanization online and she did this great study where she had back to your phone thing, actually, some strangers argue on Slack, essentially, on by text. And then she had a different group that were having the same conversation, basically, but on the phone. And the people who had the phone conversation both came away with like more understanding and respect for the other person's position. But they also actually just had better feelings about that person as a person. And her hypothesis was that there's this weird way in which text in particular abstracts thought from the author in a way that it's then very easy to forget that there was a thought process behind it. Someone put some work into that. So you can just say, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And when you're hearing someone articulate something, it's harder to forget that like, 
oh, this is a person who has doing some work or has some emotional need to like come to this position. And even if I don't agree, like I can recognize that there's a person behind the statement. So to the question of what does the internet look like in 10 years? I mean, there's a part of me that thinks we're all going to look back at this era where we tried to like have massive cross societal communication and tiny little fragments of text and just go like, what the hell was that? Like, what were we thinking that that was a viable way of engaging? Because it's really hard (laughs) to communicate at that level with little bits of text. I can really imagine, you know, looking back on this era and just being like, well, obviously there were those problems. Transparency is a word that's bantered around a lot that, um, you know, in order to be a good member of community, you need everything needs to be transparent. And you know, there are a gazillion tools, happily and uh, fortuitously there to help you document every single thing. So you can take voice notes, we can, I could be recording this Zoom call, I can post this to a Notion page and make sure that everyone can hear absolutely everything and see it. I'm not suggesting for a second that we shouldn't be transparent yeah. and that we, you know, shouldn't share information and make sure that things are well documented. Whether I'm questioning is how transparent you need to be and whether every single decision and conversation needs to be recorded in order to be transparent and how much time it consumes in digesting all of that openness. Yeah. So one of my favorite books in this whole journey of trying to understand physical public spaces is this little book, and it's called The The Public Life of Small Urban Spaces. And it's by William White, who is kind of a colleague of Jane Jacobs. He's basically running around New York in the 70s with a film camera, taking these like day-long shoots of different public spaces. And then he watches them and kind of tries to figure out like, why are there lots of people here now and not here? And how are people engaging? So he has this whole great riff on Bryant Park in New York, um, which is right in, in Midtown, and how Bryant Park offers these different degrees of publicness and privateness. So it's all like sort of ostensibly a public space, but there are these nooks where you can really sit with another person across a a table and you're not very visible, you're not super audible. It's kind of quasi-private. And then you can walk a little closer to the center and there's a ring of trees and you can hang out by the trees and kind of observe. And then in the center of the park, there's this big open space and you can kind of like do the look at me juggling or I'm sunbathing or whatever. You know, so he was observing how people really consciously were modulating their comfort level with the degree of publicness that they had. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking about digital life and how it's not just that it's unintuitive how to modulate, you know, how how transparent or how private or public we are. It's that sometimes it's actually kind of inverted where we think we're at that little table, but actually it's being recorded and broadcast all over the world. And so I just think Yes, privacy isn't a binary, it's like a gradient and offer people that intuitive sense of how private or public is this is going to be one of the big areas of innovation, I hope, you know, in the next 10 years. Did anything like that come out of New Public? I mean, the the festival? Yeah, there are definitely people who are looking at building on, on pieces of that. Part of what we're trying to do is shed a light on some of the folks who are experimenting with some different ways of being together, some different ways of building digital spaces. So this is kind of a different set of problems, but um, we were really excited about a platform in Vermont in the United States called Front Porch Forum. Yeah, it's basically like local, heavily moderated, once a day 
discussion fora. So if you send a note that isn't very nice, you get it back with a little thing at the top that says like, hey, Eli, could you rewrite this to follow our community standards? And the once a day thing is really important because it's really, really hard to sustain a flame war over like 14 days. You just really have to be a maniac talking to another maniac in order to do that. They do exist. <laughs> they, they do exist totally, but it's like, it it drops down the amount of the conversation that is just people who have been triggered for whatever reason, triggering other people. Right. And so, you know, from an engagement standpoint, if you were you know, looking at it as a venture capital pitch, you know, you're taking out a lot of the most high engagement activities because, you know, provoking people is a really good way to drive repeat usage online. I was going to say as a, as a venture capital pitch, it wouldn't do very well. <laughs> no, but, you know, two thirds of Vermont households are on it. It's doing great, even though Facebook has continued to, you know, be a big part of people's lives in Vermont. And it's the place people know where you have a certain kind of community conversation that you would be able to have in a Facebook group or anywhere else. I point to it because it just suggests what kind of opportunities open up when you take away the imperative to like drive growth up into the right as quickly as possible. So is it possible to scale it? Will the, is there intention to move it from beyond Vermont to other cities? I mean, the question with all these things is how do we, not that you necessarily have to try and you know, crush Facebook or Twitter, but how do you compete with an organization or a project or a, a tool as, as powerful as Facebook and Twitter and make it stick? They're not interested in scaling it. Yeah, they, they sort of feel like they want to just focus on making it the best social network that Vermont has. And I think there are pieces of it that probably would need to be different in different kinds of communities. But I also think certainly when Facebook started or when Twitter started, you know, there were just feats of technology, feats of engineering that you couldn't have that kind of utility without. We're entering a period where some of that will be kind of off the rack enough that it will be more possible to build bespoke social infrastructure without a lot of like coding it from the bottom up. Really what you need is the the people part of it and the community part of it. And that's a social problem as much as a technological one. You referenced Jane Jacobs earlier on. In my book, I referenced Jane Jacobs, who um, took on the organization, the Robert Moses, and, you know, prevented the development of, um, you know, the, the sort of downtown communities. Yeah. You remind me a bit of Jane Jacobs. Is, is Facebook and Twitter Robert Moses? <laughs> That's uh, the best compliment I've gotten in a while. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think there's some similarities. I mean, I think centralized technocratic thinking has its limits. And there are things that it does amazingly well, and there are things that it does amazingly poorly. We're living in the shadow of a bunch of the things that don't go well when you're building very quickly and in a central kind of modernist way and without a lot of feedback or ownership at the at the ground level. We've seen this kind of pendulum swing over and over again from from those approaches. I'll tell you, I mean, this is a weird, weird analogy, but I've been thinking a lot about the story about how Rwanda has done really well in the pandemic. And Rwanda's like 12 million people, not a lot of health infrastructure in terms of the just total amount of money invested. But they chose to do this kind of like community health approach where every community in Rwanda has a nurse practitioner, basically, who everybody knows, 
who's responsible for handling a whole bunch of the kind of frontline health needs of the community. And so when the pandemic came along, yeah, they had this incredibly embedded, agile, contextually aware team ready to go to get masks out, to help propagate the guidelines. And the result is that Rwanda has like 8,000 cases in total and 70 deaths or something. It's unbelievable, you know, numbers given where we are in the United States or, or the UK or countries that have spent a lot more on health infrastructure. That's a little parable about why community-driven approaches to these things isn't just sweet or cute or it actually can be a much more effective approach than some of these like centralized infrastructures that we've come to rely on. <laughs> it requires a totally different lens. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is what Jane Jacobs did with New York. She educated people that the city wasn't about buildings. You know, New York is about people. And what people, I think, have forgotten or perhaps haven't even realized is that the Internet is about people, too. Right. Um, You know, these are real people we're engaging with. They have a feeling and they have emotions. And, you know, the most important thing that I think you've managed to articulate so beautifully is that this this is about us. And uh, we are collectively responsible. It's you, it's me, it's the companies we work for, and it's the governments that, um, you know, that supposedly look after us, and we all need to play a collective role in it. In, in wrapping up, I just wanted to ask you, you know, um, if you had a magic wand, if there's one thing you'd like to, you know, to make disappear from our digital lives or that you'd, you would love to, you know, see materialize, what, what would it be? A piece that I've been really focused on is just making it easier to explain and hold norms among groups of people. And that sounds kind of like boring, but people literally just have no idea what good behavior looks like, what normal behavior looks like. And it's reinforced by algorithms, which are actually, if you think about it, literally designed to give more attention to abnormal things and less attention to normal things. You know, so I think some of the most important work and some of the biggest things that are missing are just some of these really basic signposts that help people understand like this is what people normally do here most people are not acting like jerks and you're kind of an outlier if you are and there's some opportunity some some ability for communities to kind of self self enforce that that goes a long way to kind of helping deal with some of the the challenges that we face i think it's a time for kind of like a lot of experimentation I don't think when the parks movement was nascent, they totally could envision all of the things that parks might become or all of the purposes they might serve. You know, there was just a drive to innovate, some problems to solve, and this seemed like one potential solution. And I I should probably, you know, it'd be fun to do the companion piece looking at like whatever weird ideas never became, you know, solutions to those problems, but that people played with at that time, because you know that there's a whole bunch of them that got left in history. But it's like, this is a time where we ought to be channeling that public imagination and then just trying a lot of different approaches and learning together about what's working. We can identify kind of the problem space and the opportunity, but I think we're going to find our way there through just kind of building some stuff and on a, on a local scale and seeing what what's working. So I'm really just very excited about that as the next chapter. You seem optimistic. I think in this world, if you're not careful, you can quite easily become very pessimistic because there seem to be so many things going wrong. You know, if the parks and and the libraries and those kinds of things have taught us one thing, it's that, you know, societies hit these real moments of fragmentation and fracture and inequality. And then they have these amazing opportunities to kind of find new new ways of being together. And I feel like that's the opportunity that's in front of us again.
No, I agree. We just need Elon Musk to change his Twitter profile to public spaces <laughs> or hashtag library <laughs> yeah. and you'll be set. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not Elon Musk. Uh, it, it doesn't just have to be one, one uh, you know, God, God-like uh, entrepreneur. But uh, I think we're on our way. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Eli Pariser. Eli, when you build your public park online, we promise to come and visit very often. If you're interested in learning more about Jane Jacobs, there's a fantastic documentary called Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, that can tell you a lot more about the Jane Jacobs story. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering by Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Mertens and a massive thank you to our friends at Center Sound Studio here in Amsterdam. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe, rate and leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield and you can send me guest recommendations for this show there too. Please. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next week. Music